It is my pleasure to be with you all here at the historic Independent Presbyterian Church. I want to especially thank the Reverend Terry Johnson, his pastors and session and elders and leaders for this wonderful honor to be among you. This has got to be one of the most beautiful churches I've ever been in, and I've been to a lot. And so what a glorious place to worship the living God. And it's, I believe it is not by accident or by coincidence that I stand before you today as a Korean, as a Presbyterian, who not only believes in God's sovereignty, but also his providence. I'm here because of people like Cornelia Rankin, a member of Independent Presbyterian Church who pointed Koreans to Jesus in 1906. You see, Nellie Rankin, as she was called, was someone whose heart was gripped by gospel hope because of gospel grace. And though she came from a wealthy home in Savannah where she could have moved in the highest circles of society, she set sail for Korea in 1906 to do missionary work. And for four years in Jeonju, Korea, where I, where I recently went, and the food's really good there, by the way. <laughs> and for four years in Jeonju, Korea, she used her brilliant mind to not only master a difficult language and manage a household of a thriving garden and many pigs, but she also became the principal of a school for young girls that never existed before. Because school was not for women, school was not for girls in that culture at that time. And so she would regularly rise, Nellie would rise before sunrise to prepare for a full day of teaching illiterate women and girls not only their own written language, but also about the love of Jesus, her Savior and her Master. And though she was often interrupted by visitors seeking to catch a glimpse of this foreigner, she loved the Koreans, who often said of her, quote, smiles grow whenever Lady Nellie walks by. And in one of her letters, she wrote about her daily life in Korea, quote, people who have never been inside the church are flocking to the afternoon meetings to see me, the foreigner. I've eaten rice and pickled turnip, seaweed and native sauce till I feel pickled myself. There's no such thing as a timepiece within miles and no bells. So people come at all time for classes. Everybody gets up with the first streak of day, which is about 4.30 a.m. now. So from about 6.30 a.m. on, they begin to gather. Now when the day is long, I hate to get up at 5 a.m., but there is nothing else to do unless I dress, eat, and do everything to a grandstand full. So I teach two hours in the morning, two in the afternoon, two at night, about using up my voice so I really cannot talk at the end of the day. And though Nellie only served in Korea for four years, dying from complications from appendicitis, she gave her all to Jesus as a pointer of grace. Nellie Rankin could have been the belle of Savannah, but she obeyed the command of her master to become a pointer of grace. And that's why even I stand here before you today, the grandson of a grandmother who welcomed missionaries to her home in the 1920s. So it comes full circle to God be all the glory. 
Now, not all of us will be called by God to go to different, difficult foreign fields to do missions, and that's okay. Only some will be called by God to do this type of ministry, and I hope more from this congregation will do so. But I believe that all of us are called to point those in our lives to Jesus, to be pointers to grace because of gospel hope. And we'll discover that this morning through this seemingly distant story, this story has some profound things to say about God, his sovereign purposes, about Christ and his saving work, and yes, has some to say about us, especially as we, ordinary people, demonstrate extraordinary faith as we strive to be pointers to grace. Now, how does this text teach us that? Simply this. Since the gospel of grace has washed us and made us new, giving us hope, our call is to humbly point others to this same Christ in our words and in our deeds. And while there are many truths and insights we can learn from this wonderful Bible passage, I want to take a look at the three main characters in this story that will hopefully encourage us and inspire us to be pointers to grace because of gospel hope. So first, let's take a look at the first main character, Naaman. What can we learn from him? Well, I believe there are at least two things we can learn about ourselves through this character, Naaman. But first, a little bit of background. Israel and Aramea, which we call Syria today, had a long history of fighting over land, territory, water, name it, they fought. Now thankfully, the king of Israel, Ahab, was able to work out a tentative truce with the king of Syria, but a lot of the soldiers on the borders still engaged in some skirmishes that were neither officially sanctioned nor frankly discouraged. And now during one of those raids, Syrian soldiers took a young girl from Israel and took her captive, and this young girl became a servant of General Naaman's wife. And this is where we pick up the story. Who was Naaman? We read in verse 1 that he was a commander of the, of, the, of the great army of Syria. In fact, we read he's a great man, a man of power, a valiant soldier. In fact, one of the most powerful soldiers in the army. He was highly regarded for his military victory, maybe, maybe even against great Assyria. So he had a, a place of great esteem and honor in that society. He could even go to the king personally and make requests directly to him. That's how powerful and respected he was. But he had a problem, didn't he? The story takes a strange turn with the phrase at the end of verse 1, but he had leprosy. In the original Hebrew, that's just one word. So you have this wonderful flowing prose describing his stature, his power, his position. Then it just comes to a stop and says, leper. The narrator, I think, does this on purpose to teach us that no matter how impressive of a man he was in that society, he was an outcast. He was a pariah. He was marginalized because of his skin condition. And so the first obvious problem we learn here is that he had this external physical disease of leprosy, causing much discomfort and pain, no doubt. For those of us unfamiliar with this skin disease, listen to this description by a medical doctor. He says, leprosy generally begins with pain in certain areas of the body. Numbness follows. Soon the skin in such spots loses its color. 
The skin gets to be thick, glossy, and scaly. As the, skin, as the sickness progresses, the, 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 the thickened spots become dirty sores and ulcers due to poor blood supply. And the skin, especially around the eyes and the ears, begin to bunch. Fingers start to drop off or are just absorbed. Eyelashes and eyebrows drop out. By this time, one can see with your eyes that this person in this pitiable condition is a leper. But by the touch of a finger, one can even feel it. And unfortunately, one can even smell it. For the leper emits a very unpleasant odor. Moreover, in view of the fact that this disease-producing disease -producing agent frequently attacks the larynx, the voice acquires a kind of grating quality. And if you stay with somebody for a long time with leprosy, you could even imagine a peculiar taste in your mouth, probably because of the smell. All the senses of the well person are engaged in the detection of a leper, end quote. And though today we have medicine to cure this disease, during biblical times like this, it was a horrific disease, literally wasting away the body. It was a dreadful and disgusting physical disease. But there's a less obvious and perhaps more important problem that the narrator in this text wants us to see, and that is not the external problem, but the internal problem. You see, his problem was more than skin deep. You see, as a leper, this great general experienced a social exclusion that must have caused a lot of internal shame and no doubt discouragement and depression. And even though he had a great resume, a great reputation, when people saw him, all they saw was this disease. It didn't matter who he was. In their, out, in their eyes, he was an outcast, marginalized, not only because of what his skin disease represented, but because of what it represented spiritually. You see, Naaman was cursed inside and out. Because to Israelites first hearing and reading this story, he wasn't just someone to be pitied for his skin disease, sure. But it was actually more serious to the Israelite who knew their Bible well. You see, the Bible tells us in passages like Leviticus 13 that the leper had to be isolated not only because of the physical contagion, sure, but because of his spiritual status. So it's not hard to imagine the humiliation and isolation of a leper's life. He was ostracized from society, had to assume a disheveled appearance. And, when, and then when it was the ultimate degradation, when anybody came near, he had to cry out, unclean, unclean, get away from me, unclean. He had to wear black with a hood covering his face and had to live outside the city walls. Josephus, the famous first century historian, summed it up by saying lepers were essentially, quote, in effect, dead men walking. Even the king of Israel understood this, right? He says in verse 7, am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? You see, he was not only an outsider, but he was spiritually unclean and under God's judgment. This is the first thing we learn about this story, isn't it? About ourselves. If you, if you think about it, Naaman's problem is our problem for those of us that are outside of Christ's mercy. His leprosy is a physical illustration of our hearts that have not been cleansed by Jesus. 
whether it's us before Christ, our next-door neighbor, or those in foreign lands. If for a moment we could see a visible incarnation of ourselves outside of the cleansing work of Jesus, we would be able to see that we are just but the walking dead. Forms dead in our trespasses and sins. Forms trying to cover ourselves with filthy rags, and we can try to cover it up with our status, our reputation, our success, but in the end, outside of Christ, what are we? Spiritual lepers, wasting away from the inside out. And this is the problem of all those who don't know Jesus. But there's another truth that I think the text wants to teach us. In light of Naaman's problems, both inside and out, what does Naaman try to even do about it? Did you notice he gets permission by his king to go see the prophet in verse 5 and 6? But notice what Naaman does to try to rid himself of both his disease as well as his depression. What does he do? Well, he does at least five things. Count them with me. Number one, he brings all of his resources. He brings an enormous amount of money. This is 700 pounds of silver, 120 pounds of gold, 10 sets of clothing. Why? Why does he bring all these resources? He's hoping to buy a cure. Secondly, he brings his relationships, right? He expects the kings of Syria and Israel to open up doors for him. He relies upon relationships or resources, relationships. What else does he bring? Three, he also brings his reputation, doesn't he? Do you notice when he finally goes to see Elisha, what does he do? He waits. Why? Because he's the great general. He sends his servant to go get Elisha. Make him come out to me. That's how proud he was of his reputation. He also brings forth his his own race. Think about it. When he's told to go wash in this muddy, insignificant river, what does he do? Wait a minute. Aren't the rivers from my country better? So he brings his resources, his relationships, his reputation. He brings his race. And finally, he brings his idea of rewards, doesn't he? At the end of the day, he expected that he could do something great, right? In verse 13, he could do some great thing so that Elisha would come out and reward him for the great work that he did. So he does all these things. And so ultimately, when when you look at the five things that he does and he brings, what can we learn? At the end of the day, Naaman's hope and security is in Naaman. Naaman's solution to the problem of disease and depression is himself. Naaman's ultimate trust and hope, security and salvation is himself. And then the point of the story is at the end of the day, for those outside of Christ, we are just the same. We may call it different things, but in the midst of the challenges of life, how often do we look to ourselves for security and control, salvation and hope? And looking to ourselves, whether in self-pride or self-pity, is ultimately nothing but a symptom of unbelief. A lack of faith and trust in God, no matter what the circumstances may be. No matter how difficult, no matter how dark, how often in those situations do we look to ourselves? And this is the solution that those without Jesus, whether in Savannah, Georgia, or Seoul, Korea, this is who they turn to. And our hearts must break for them. 
And so we learn here through Naaman that in the midst of the sins and severe trials of life, how often we turn to everything but God for our security and our hope. Naaman's problem is our problem. Naaman's solution is our solution. And that's what we learn from this first character. Let's take a look at our second major character, Elisha. What can we learn about God through Elisha? We learned about ourselves through Naaman. Now let's learn about our God through Elisha. We learn a lot. What, is, what does Elisha do and say when Naaman comes to him? Did you notice? Naaman brings all of his resources. Elisha accepts nothing. He refuses everything. Naaman brings all of his relationships and connections. Elisha doesn't care one bit about those relationships. Naaman brings his re reputation. Do you notice Elisha doesn't go out to greet him? He sends his son, Gehazi, or his servant, Gehazi. Naaman brings his race. Elisha tells him to go be washed in this muddy, insignificant, inferior river. Naaman brings his rewards. Elisha simply tells him to be washed, to be a passive recipient of a washing, nothing more. So first, notice, Elisha rejects everything, doesn't he? Clearly, this is not what God requires so Naaman goes away angry like the rich young ruler, right? And that's the first thing we learn about our God through this story. God rejects, ultimately rejects, all of our man-made, self-centered solutions and strategies for salvation. Just like Elisha rejects all that Naaman tries to bring or to buy, God rejects all of our efforts as well as our assets. So all of Naaman's resources and righteousness are rejected. What else do we learn? In addition to rejecting Naaman's self-centered solutions for salvation, what does Elisha do? Elisha not only rejects, but also reveals, doesn't he? He reveals that true healing and salvation is not something you earn, it is something that is received. God's grace alone is received by faith alone. How does Elisha tell, what does Elisha tell Naaman to do? He says, Go dip yourself in the Jordan seven times. And though he wasn't convinced at first, he finally does it. And then after the seventh time, his flesh is restored. Naaman finally came to his senses and realized that God's ways are different from our ways. He realized that things like resources and reputation could never be enough. And this is the second thing we learn about our God, isn't it? Not only that he rejects all that we try to bring, we learn about our God through the character of Elisha that the only way to receive true cleansing and true healing is simply, yet profoundly, receiving grace through faith. Grace alone. Faith alone. And so we learn that true cleansing and healing from being unclean, under judgment, outside of God's blessings, comes by receiving God's grace alone through faith alone. We cannot cleanse ourselves God must do it. We must recognize we are helpless by ourselves to get rid of the disease of sin and shame. And friends, what's amazing about this God in this story is that many centuries later, God will again intervene in the life of another leper. Do you remember? In Mark chapter 1, a man with leprosy comes to Jesus asking for healing. And what does Jesus do? 
Listen carefully to Mark chapter 141. Filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. Did you hear that? And with that touch, Jesus healed him, forever changing his life. Perhaps it had been 20, 25 years since the leper had been touched by another. Jesus didn't need to do that. He could have just spoken the word to heal him. In fact, the disciples must have been shocked. Jesus was now ceremonially unclean and might even catch the disease. Jesus, what are you doing? Friends, this isn't just loving compassion. It was substitutionary identification. The clean touch of Jesus' pure hand on the unclean leper was a sign of what was to come. You see, Jesus ultimately became a leper for us. Do you see how scandalous this, this, this is? With that touch, the unclean became clean, and the clean became unclean in this substitutionary identification. Here in 2 Kings 5, in Mark chapter 1, we have a picture of what Jesus will do to ultimately make all of his children clean. God took the sin and shame that leprosy represents and placed it upon his own son on Golgotha at Calvary. Took him outside the city walls to a hill called Golgotha. And there on Calvary, Jesus endured all the scorn and shame of not only Naaman's leprosy, but all of our sin. There on Calvary, he was excluded so we can be taken in. There on Calvary, he was cast outside of God's favor so we can receive eternal blessing. There on Calvary, he was placed under judgment so we can be declared righteous. There on Calvary, he became unclean so we can be clean. This is our God. He has done it all. God made him to knew no, who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might be called the righteousness of God. He's done everything. This is our security and our hope. This is the security and the hope the whole world needs. Not ourselves, but God alone, through grace alone, through the work of Christ alone, received by faith alone. And this is why we can continue to trust and hope in him, and testify to his grace, even when we are facing the most severe trials and tribulations of life, things in life that often seem so insurmountable. We have hope. We have gospel hope, because God has claimed victory over the most difficult trial itself, death. Since God has taken care of death for us, will he not take care of the rest? Beloved, this is what we learn from this second character, Elisha. So we've looked at Naaman, we've looked at Elisha, who is the third and last character. There's one final character in our text that I'd like for us to learn from. Now, she doesn't have the prestige of Naaman, nor the significance of Elisha. I want you to take a look at this seemingly insignificant person again in verses 2 and 3. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the ser service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Probably no more than 11 or 12 years old, we are introduced to an unnamed, kidnapped, trafficked servant girl 
Far from her family, far from her home, she has become a slave and a servant in a foreign land. And I think sometimes when we read the Bible, we, we too quickly gloss over people like her. But I think there's a lot we can learn from her. Think about it. In contrast to Naaman, she's about as low as you can get on the social ladder. She had no rights. She was a foreign captive in another country. She had no reputation. She was a female in the Middle East. She was uneducated, uneducated, disregarded. And perhaps most telling of all, she has no name. We are not told her name. But that's because it wasn't and isn't important. We don't know the name of this servant girl imprisoned in a foreign land, surrounded by difficult and dark circumstances. But what we do know is this. Beloved, in a remarkable testimony of faithful and humble missionary service, she simply pointed to the only one who can provide healing and hope. She was simply a pointer to the God of grace. She simply told him where he can get help. She was a servant pointing to God. Even in the most difficult of circumstances, having been kidnapped, made a slave of this family, she looks even beyond herself, sees herself as a pilgrim on a difficult journey, knowing in faith that God is her God, and God has the compassion on even this person who kidnapped me. Notice how she views name and the man responsible for taking her away from her family, her home, her country. If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Friends, what extraordinary faith. She's able to see the, beyond the natural instinct of fear, bitterness, revenge. And astoundingly, she, like Nellie Reynolds of Savannah, Georgia, sees above all a person in need, both physically and spiritually, and points that person in faith to the God of grace. Friends, as I conclude, there's so many things I can try to inspire you with. Put God first, love your family, pray without ceasing. These are all great exhortations. But I, what I leave you is with this. Friends, since Jesus has washed you and made you new, Humbly point others to this Jesus in your words and in your deeds, no matter how difficult the circumstances. We are but ordinary people who can demonstrate extraordinary faith and hope because of the love and grace of God in Jesus Christ. And because of this gospel hope, we can become pointers to grace as you pray for global missions, as you partner with global missions, as you participate with global missions. And the easiest way for you to do that, even today, is to point others to the grace of God. Amen? Let us pray together. Father, how grateful we are to you for the amazing ways in which you teach us about your grace. It is an astounding, amazing grace that you would condescend to not only create us, but you have redeemed us and saved us and healed us and washed us through the blood of our Savior Jesus, who was cast outside the city walls, placed under your judgment, so that through faith in him, we might be declared righteous and placed into your family.
And so we pray that because of this wonderful, amazing, astounding grace, that with the hope that we have, in the, even in the most difficult of circumstances, we will just humbly and faithfully point others in our family, in our workplace, in our community, and around the world, that we would point them to the amazing grace that can only be found in Jesus. Will you help us by your Spirit to become pointers to grace? For we ask it in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.